Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Tom Hartman, The Majority Report, Ring of Fire, and The Young Turks. Eighteen families, ten years, a national phony baloney movement. This is what's sometimes referred to as astroturf, right? the appearance of a grassroots effort that, in fact, is uh, being run from the top down. Turns out that the 10-year campaign that has been going on under our very noses to repeal the estate tax, championed by Grover Norquist, and, and you've got the, I mean, there's no shortage of groups out there that have been pushing this thing. For example, the American Farm Bureau. They got behind this. And then the New York Times said, you know, they said, well, we've got to repeal the estate tax because uh, family farmers are losing the farms. So the New York Times, I mean, some enterprising reporter said, whoa, if that's true, we need to do a story on that. And you know how they like to start a news story with an example? You know, Ralph and Jane were standing out in front of the house that they're losing the bankruptcy because they couldn't afford the cost of milk or whatever it was, right? So they're looking for a story. So the New York Times says to the American Farm Bureau, uh, you're supporting the repeal of the estate tax because it's wiping out family farmers. Please give us the name of one that we can interview or profile. The American Farm Bureau was unable to find one single family farm that had been lost to the estate tax. Not one. Your odds of being struck by lightning are four times higher than your odds of being hit by the estate tax. Unless you're a billionaire. Well, it turns out that this 10-year effort to repeal the estate tax, rename it the death tax and to repeal it, has been financed and coordinated by 18 families. These 18 families collectively have a net worth of $185.5 billion. And if the tax was repealed, it would collectively net them a windfall of $71.6 billion. And thus you've got Bill Frist, who, by the way, his father is a billionaire as a result of sucking the blood out of our health care system, also known as us, Bill Frist out there and all these other Republicans pushing this thing. Whereas more than half of Americans say, hey, leave the, leave the estate tax alone. We like the estate tax. As Paul Newman, a guy who's got a little bit of cash in his back pocket, as Paul Newman said, quote, for those of us lucky enough to be born in this country and to have flourished here, the estate tax is a reasonable and appropriate way to return something to the common good. I'm proud to be among those supporting the preservation of this tax, which is one of the fairest taxes we have. Thank you, Paul Newman. Niskanen, chairman of the Cato Institute, the conservative and somewhat libertarian-leaning, I guess, uh, Cato Institute, has a uh, an interesting uh, a study out, and um, uh, Kevin Drum addresses it this way. What happens if the federal government reduces taxes and runs a deficit, thus lowering, quote, the cost of government? Well, people will buy more government. Now, this is important because conservatives have long contended that they can uh, starve feeding the beast by going into deficit spending. We know that Dick Cheney said that uh, Ronald Reagan proved that deficits don't cause a problem. And uh, this has been uh, in their notion of cutting taxes, because if you give government more money, they'll just spend it. And uh, the uh, Republicans have been running uh, this government in that way over the past five years, going from a surplus to a deficit, raising the debt ceiling five times. Can now, I ask, this is I'm the sorry, study. I'm sorry, can I ask, that, that trope, they'll spend it, 
what are they supposed to do with it? Well, let me let me tell you the study because this is this is uh, it, it shows that that's not even a- accurate. Uh, Niskanen <laughs> recently analyzed this is coming from the Atlantic Monthly. Uh, Niskanen recently analyzed data from 1981 to 2005 and found quote no sign that deficits have ever acted as a constraint on spending. To the contrary, judging by the last 25 years. A tax cut of 1% of the GDP increases the rate of spending growth by about 0.15% of the GDP a year. A comparable tax hike reduces spending growth by the same amount. So there you have it, folks. Raising taxes actually prevents the government from spending. That didn't answer my question, though. Wait, wait, I'm not finished there. Wait a second. I would like to be proven wrong, says Niskanen. No wonder. For the modern conservative coalition, the implications of its findings are discomforting and, in a sense, tragic. So the point is here is that when you uh, raise taxes on people, they understand the implications of uh, government spending, and then uh, spending is curbed and is actually made responsible, as opposed to this borrow-and-spend that the Republicans do, uh, which inevitably leads to wasteful spending. And that's all we, uh, we have. Earmarks have gone up by about 300% over where they were just 10 years ago today. And all, all those earmarks are basically uh, little pet projects stuffed into bills that pay for things like the, the highway to nowhere and uh, are basically just pork brought back to their corporate interests. Can I ask a question? Sure, Janine. So, Sam, my question is, if the trope is uh, that the government just takes your money and spends it, right? Isn't that the point? The taxes are collected to support the infrastructure, to keep the highways going, perhaps railroads, perhaps keep Social Security or Medicare and Medicaid going, or finance public libraries, whatever it is. Isn't I don't understand what that means then. The government will spend it. Isn't that how it's supposed to act? It's supposed well, they're to suggesting that money. you can't. The, the implication is the conservatives always push this notion that if you raise taxes, you are encouraging government to be irresponsible with their spending and that you can never balance a budget if you raise taxes because the government will always spend just like, uh, you know, uh, uh, your average person supposedly spends, you know, 10, 15 percent more than they actually take in. And the the argument by conservative has always been if you raise taxes, that money will there'll be a desperate attempt by government to spend that much plus. And in fact, it's the absolute opposite. It is the absolute opposite. With every 1% of a raise in taxes, the rate of spending drops. And this is coming from a conservative. I mean, it's just one more aspect of the so-called conservative ideology that has been completely debunked. I mean, there is nothing left to conservatism. I mean, and the Rumsfeld thing shows it perfectly. To be a conservative simply means blind faith in people who are lying to you, period. That's it. It's just simply I am associating that with my team. You might as well, instead of actually trying to work out some type of conservative ideology, and I would love a conservative to call in and explain to me one thing. With all the conservatives who dominate this country, dominate it, whether it's in our uh, Congress or our Senate or sitting uh, top of the executive branch or, frankly, in terms of the media, we but they're not hear, conservative, though, well, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, they're self-identifying as conservative. Right, right, they are. But what they are is, is what you're saying. is well, it's I don't no know what the word a soccer means. hooligan in, in, in Europe where they will literally kill for their team. This is my point. Instead of trying to even I, – I don't even think we could get a conservative that could actually justify a philosophy. Because instead of what you should do now, if you're a conservative, stop pretending that you have a philosophy. Just go out, buy yourself a football jersey or a hot, hockey jersey. Just put, like – a big C on the front, or just write conservative, and then put your name on the back and a number, maybe double zero comes to mind. Uh, Because that's basically what you've been reduced to. You're simply rooting for nothing, literally an empty shirt. Stars come out of the sky. 
the race to the bottom. While world, worldwide worker surplus and uncontrolled free trade are sinking American living standards, Allenson, Alan Tonelson is with us on the line. Alan, welcome to the program. Well, thanks very much for having me, Tom. I finished reading your book yesterday on a flight from um, from uh, L.A. to San Francisco, mm. and uh, it's a, it's a uh, first of all, this is a book that was published what six years ago? It was published in 2000, and then it came out in paperback with a brand new introduction in 2002. Oh, okay. I, I have the hardcover, so I don't okay. have the brand new introduction, but uh, 174 pages. I was able to read it on 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 two flights. <laughs> wow. <laughs> was... I hope you weren't skimming now. No, I wasn't. Okay. I, and, and in fact, as I look at it, I see I've probably got about 50 pages here where I've dog-eared the corners and marked up things. Uh, oh. There, this is this is uh, one of the most dense, solid, well done, um, powerful, articulate uh, refutations of Thomas Friedman and the religion that has formed around him that I have ever seen, even though I don't think you ever mentioned Friedman's name specifically in the book. I, I did talk a little Well, first of all, thank you very, very much. That's a, extremely, uh, um, uh, that's extremely head-swelling praise, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll try not to let it to get to me too much. But I did mention Friedman's first book, The Lexus and, and, the, uh, the, Lexus and the Olive Tree, which... It seems to me is is virtually identical to this latest book about the the flat world, right. and as I think you've been suggesting, it's just an uncritical hymn to a, a specific type of globalization that, in in my view, has been absolutely disastrous not only for American working people, but for the whole cause of maintaining a strong manufacturing base here in this nation, which is where it really counts with all of the manifold social benefits that flow from that, the the incredibly important national security benefits that flow from that, because we still fight wars with with goods and not services, by and large. Uh, we still fight wars, by and large, with manufactured goods, and that's incredibly important. And what he doesn't mention or what he refuses to acknowledge is that this form of big corporation-driven globalization is creating a looming disaster for the entire global economy. And the sign of that are these unprecedented trade and economic imbalances that we're experiencing today. Yeah, we're, we're speaking with Alan Tonelson, his uh, website, AmericanEconomicAlert.org, his book, The Race to the Bottom, an absolutely brilliant uh, piece of work. You've got you've to get this book. Um, it's brilliant. And Alan, let's let's go back to like you know the beginning. One oh okay. Mm-hmm. Why do people form themselves into nation states? Because this is the the answer to this is the is the absolute refutation of Friedman's "The world is flat." Oh, we really don't need nation states. We just need multinational corporations. Absolutely. And and before we focus too tightly on Friedman, I do feel obligated to say that this vision that that he's been sketching is one that is held by many, many very important uh, uh, constituencies on the right, strangely enough, because we always think of the right as being rather nationalistic, but it's also held very, very strongly by, by certain constituencies of the left. Oh, there's an absolute agreement on these things between, for example, Barack Obama and Bill Frist. Exactly. Between right. Bill that's, Clinton that's, and George W. A- Bush. That's exactly right. And and there's been a bipartisan policy failure that's been unfolding for about uh for for roughly um, twenty years. But I yeah. think uh, And in fact I would say the last national figure to seriously take this on was Ross Perot and he was he was characterized as a crazy old coot, although he got almost twenty percent of the vote. So at least Americans in their gut knew that there was something there. Right. And they responded to him in in a in an outpouring of support that we haven't seen for a third-party candidate uh, uh, really since the early, uh, well, I, I guess since since Roosevelt ran in, uh, when was it, 1912. Yeah, so well, it, Teddy it, Roosevelt, it was, right, right, the Bull exactly. Moose Party, yeah. Exactly. And, and in Georgia. fact, he, you know, and he swung an election with that. Right. <laughs> and he was also, he was an economic nationalist, by the way. That's right, he was a populist. It, and it, now, exactly. so... So back to the original question. Right. Uh, Why do people form nation states? They form it 
first and foremost because it's been the most efficient means of providing them with the security in their day-to-day -day lives that they crave. Now, until very recently, the, the overwhelming focus has, of course, been, been military security. Now we've had, I'd say in the last maybe 10 or well, really since the end of World War II, where you could even date it back to the start of the, the New Deal, there's been an increasing emphasis on economic security. And, um, and even though we remain in most respects a very strongly free market country, there has emerged a pretty strong um, consensus in this nation that some kind of welfare state has to exist to provide for those who simply can't. And that also reflects the second very important reason that people form nation states, and that is they do feel a sense of mutual obligation in whatever um, political uh, uh, community they choose, they, choose to, they choose to create. A sense of interdependence. We're, exactly. we're in this together. With and this, this, this is a, a fundamental human uh, instinct, I would say. It starts with family. It goes to clan or tribe or community or neighborhood, depending on the, the, the culture that you're in. And then it's expanded to the nation or the state and the nation. And... And, and and it's just it's a fundamental part of being human. We are no we are a tribal animal, much right. like much like many other mammals. That's right. And we seek to we seek to form communities for for mutual gain and so, mutual support. So in the face of this, how is it possible that folks like Friedman and 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 Bill Clinton and, and you know intelligent people, right? Uh, and, and 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 George W. Bush for that? Not just him. I mean, he's the most recent. But I mean, his father, for example, the the New Same World thing. Order. How is it possible that these people would come along and say? Let's replace that sense of community. Let's replace that shared security. Let's replace that interdependence that has, in various forms and incarnations and under a variety of different names, sustained the human race for over 100,000 years. Let's replace that with an international global rule run by an artificial entity called a corporation or a series of them to the benefit of those corporations and not to the benefit of the citizens. How did they possibly come up with this idea, number one, and number two, how can they possibly sell it? Well, I think there's one more aspect to this, and that is they not only look to the, to the private corporation as the main unit um, um, to which we all apparently ought to express our loyalty, they also look to international organizations. And I do think there is a, a sense that the nation state is either no longer is either no longer entirely legitimate because we should be loyal instead at least to some extent to something called the world the world um, community which is a phrase you hear and read over and over again in the mainstream media and i think also there is a sense that because of all of the tremendous advances we've seen in transportation and communications in the especially in the last roughly 10 or 15 years that the nation state has become obsolete and to 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 remain loyal to it is a sign of of in fact reaction so i think that's that's one that's one set of very strong ideas so they're portraying us as luddites basically exa oh, exactly so so what's what's the how do you respond to that alan thomason the way that you respond best of all, A, is by pointing out that this nation and its own constitutional system is entirely legitimate, and in so many respects we are still the envy of the world, and therefore it's obviously very effective. And in fact, one friend of mine points out that when we got attacked on 9-11, people were not flying the flags of Microsoft. Right. In their windows and on their front lawn, they were flying the stars and stripes, and there's a reason for this. Because but they what happens? That Microsoft what wasn't going to take care of them. Right, but what happens when the nation state becomes taken over by the by the corporations within them? I don't I, isn't this just oligarchy revisited? In in lots of ways, yes, and in so many areas of our national life, we are seeing the privatization of systems and also institutions that had had been public, and you do see the very upper income group literally trying to wall itself off from 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 the, the from the the rest of us, from and the hoping 
to buy security and prosperity and safety. Uh, and I, but they don't realize either that, that, that their own interests, in the long term anyway, are very bound up with the fate of this United States. Right. And, and uh, when we all go down, they're, they're part of the all. Absolutely. The book, The Race to the Bottom, Why a Worldwide Worker's Surplus and Uncontrolled Free Trade are Sinking American Living Standards by Alan Tonelson. Alan, thank you for being with us today. My pleasure. The website, AmericanEconomicAlert.org. It's 16 minutes past the hour. It's the Tom Hartman program. Callers and emailers will tell Bobby and me that they're impressed with our luck in making predictions about what this Republican Congress is likely to do month to month. I always thank them for their kind remarks, but the truth is predictions about what this Republican Congress will do are ridiculously easy once you use a basic checklist. Actually, it's a list we've developed over the years. Here it is. First of all, follow the money and find out which Republican legislator is getting the biggest chunk of all that money. For example, if the Chamber of Commerce wants legislation to destroy workers' rights to sue in court when those workers are killed or when those workers are maimed on the job, just see how much money Republican committee chairs are receiving from the Chamber of Commerce. And you can pretty much tell way in advance how completely that Republican legislative body will throw American workers under the train. But that's just one part of the easy analysis. There's some other parts. Does the legislation involve protection of the environment versus protection of Republican corporate toadies such as Exxon, Tyson Foods, DuPont, or Dow Chemical? That's ridiculously easy to analyze. The white, fat, cat corporate management team will virtually always, no exceptions, they will always get their way with legislation no matter how badly our national parks, our air, our waterways, all parts of our environment suffer. Every single time, no surprises, Republicans will bludgeon the environment on behalf of white-collar corporate thugs if the money's right. Or how about the way we analyze class issues? Well, if there's legislation that are going to make poor people a little more destitute in exchange for making Republican political pioneers much wealthy, well, you got it. Poor people lose that legislative war. Same analysis with college students old people and orphans. Always look at the legislation and decide if that legislation is good or bad for the Republican Party's money men. Those fat white pink boys who are the real financiers of the Republican money machine. So with that kind of basic principle in mind, let me make a few predictions about how this Republican Congress is going to treat American workers as that Congress tampers with workers' pension plan laws. First, our Republican Congress will put as much money in the pockets of Wall Street hedge fund managers as they possibly can. You can be sure of that. That's because House Majority Leader John Boehner, our new Republican symbol for morality and ethics, received about $200,000 from Wall Street in the last election cycle. Wall Street hasn't been able to wheel and deal with pension money in the past because in 1974, a Democratic Congress wrote laws to protect workers' pension money from Wall Streeters who had a terrible reputation for squandering pension money on risky investments that, by the way, just happened to pay huge brokerage commissions. In other words, Wall Street, who you might remember, lost $4 trillion in the 2001 crash, would have had workers' pension money in corrupt loser companies like Enron, WorldCom, Global Crossing, and Tyco if there hadn't been in place protection for the workers. But you can be certain the Republicans are going to take those Wall Street high-risk restrictions away simply because Wall Street now owns this Republican Congress. Everybody knows they made Boehner their boy a long time ago. 
Another Republican you can count on in this new pension program destruction legislation will be rollbacks on huge corporations on how much they need to set aside so they can actually pay these pensions to workers who have paid into these pension programs for 25 or 30 years. In other words, corporations like Dow, DuPont, or Tyson Foods, they're going to be able to use some of that extra money just sitting around in the corporate pension plans to pay for those multi-million dollar CEO salaries and benefits. That money's now going to be squandered on more limos, more jet airplanes, and exotic vacation homes for their pampered, petulant CEOs. Another thing to look for as we watch the Republicans obliterate workers' pension rights is that they positively are going to make the new legislation into a big business welfare package where poorly run, poorly organized companies such as Northwest Airlines and Delta Airlines are going to be permitted to reorganize their top management business disasters into Chapter 11 monsters that let them walk away from their pension obligations with little or no responsibility to their retired workers. Again, remember, the formula for figuring out who's going to win and who's going to lose where it comes to Republicans writing legislation is ridiculously easy. Big business, political good old boys always win, and the typical American worker and consumer, well, they always lose. But don't just take my word for it. In fact, just to prove my point, it would really be fun to have one of those Republican ditto heads who love to agonize over what we say on this show point out any exception, even one exception, to that new Republican reality in Washington where workers' rights, consumer protection, and protection of our environment have even one time one time prevailed over America's have and have mores. <laughs> so we'll be standing by waiting for that call. But I got to tell you, we ain't going to hold our breath. The Pap Attack on Air America Radio Network. Go to ringoffireradio.com or airamericaradio.com for more info. is with us. He's an adjunct fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, website freeenterpriseactionfund.com, and, and of course CEI.org, the Competitive Enterprise Institute.org. And uh, should corporations be responsible to we the people? Uh, question. Steve, Steve, you took on, and uh, you know, I, I, on the one hand, I want to salute you for your activism. I think people should be <laughs> activists. On the other hand, uh, you, you and I have a different perspective on this stuff, but you took on Goldman Sachs recently. Uh-huh. Uh, tell us about that. You took on, actually, Hank Paulson, the CEO of Goldman Sachs. Yeah, well, we took on the CEO for uh, two main reasons. One, it appeared to us that he was using uh, shareholder assets uh, for his uh, personal uh, personal hobbies, uh, which include, uh, you know, he's he's sort of a, he's an environmental activist, and uh, so he's uh, using shareholder monies to fulfill that uh, you know hobby of his. And then the other thing is, uh, well, let's just you know specifically what that was was that Goldman Sachs uh, bought uh, 680,000 acres of land in Chile and then right. donated it to the Wildlife Conservation Society. Right. Uh, and, and he is the chairman of the Nature Conservancy, which works with the society and his daughters on the society's board of directors. Right. And the Nature Conservancy uh, is an environmental activist group. Uh, among and and as chairman of the Nature Conservancy, he's taken its agenda and transplanted it into Goldman Sachs. Right. So you don't object to his taking millions of dollars in salary and stock options and flying around on the gold, on the corporate jet with the gold-plated faucets. That doesn't bother you. What bothers you is the fact that he gave some land to the Nature Conservancy. Well, I'm serious. Uh, serious know, as, question. You're a stockholder. Say, here, as, as uh, Hank Paulson makes a lot of money for his stockholders, 
Um, yeah, the, the compensation uh, can be, you know, lots, lots of CEOs, uh, their compensation can appear to be excessive. Um, but, you know, we can. think that, we think that you know, the relative harm to shareholders in Goldman Sachs uh, from the, uh, you know, his salary is a lot less than what, he's, uh, than what he's doing by taking the Nature Conservancy agenda and making that Goldman Sachs agenda. We think that's... Well, how much did that 680,000 acres cost? Well, Goldman valued it at $35 million. I think that it's uh, worth actually a lot more because it had, uh, you know, all sorts of natural resources that could have been exploited by the people of Chile um, that, that, you know, won't be exploited now. Um, so, you know, we've got some more information coming on this la- out on this later. I don't want to get into too many details. But Goldman, it's worth at least $35 million. So your, your argument here, um, we're talking with Steve Malloy of uh, Competitive Enterprise Institute, C org. Your argument basically boils down to a corporation really has no business being in the philanthropy business. That, that corporations shouldn't be philanthropic. They should be all about making money and making money for their stockholders. And, and, and that's pretty well, much what the law our, says, think, by the way. I, I think is, that, is that an accurate characterization? Uh, no, I think it's a little too stark. I think, you know, our view is that corporations already do a tremendous amount of social good by providing goods and services they do. Um, and they need to stick to doing that sort of, uh, fulfilling that sort of role. They're not backup governments. Right, well, the or, bottom line is, okay, and I think you just said what I said, only, only you put a, a friendlier patina on it. I, basically, I could have just as easily said corporations should be making money by providing goods and services that we all want. Yes. And, yeah, okay, so we're in agreement on that. Yeah. Now, but here's the problem. Because of things like the World Trade Organization, NAFTA, CAFTA, where corporations actually sit on the governing boards of these organizations, these multinational organizations, and they ha- and and because there are treaties involved with the United States that brought these organizations into existence, these corporations have the power to literally invalidate laws passed by you and me, by the voters of this country. And in fact, it's happened on numerous occasions. These corporations that that you hold in high, such high esteem. Are are taking the role of quasi government <laughs> no. already, and they've already done this with regard to a trade policy. Let's not put words in my mouth. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, we you know we hold the ideal of businesses in esteem. Um, you know, the the reality is often not not that much not not a pretty picture. And I agree with you that corporations uh, do often circumvent uh, laws that have been made by you know the citizens, and and we oppose that. No, I'm not talking about circumventing laws. I'm talking about actually changing laws. Well, for changing example, laws, for... right. Well, you know, we could say the same thing right now about global warming. Okay, you've got Goldman Sachs, GE, and a number of other corporations, um, you know, actively lobbying to change the law uh, for you know, a variety of reasons, none of which are in the interest of consumers, the economy, uh, shareholders, or anybody else. You mean they're actively lobbying to stop global warming, and you consider that not to be in the interest well, they're of... They're not. They're, no one's... <laughs> No, they're lobbying. You're, you're not buying my they're, premise that global warming is real. Well, says you. So, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, but, but Steve, the, the bigger picture here, yeah. Steve Malloy with Competitive Enterprise and with Free, FreeEnterpriseActionFund.com, the, the bigger picture here, and, the, and this is one I think that really you and I and, and all people who, you know, all thoughtful people really need to be considering, is in a world where corporations are replacing governments very quickly, and certainly where we have people running the United States government who believe that corporations should replace government. We have the privatizing of the army now. Uh, the second largest army in Iraq, for example, is private corporations, uh, both in terms of combat and certainly in terms of, of support functions that traditionally were done by the army, like you know running the K, the the, uh, the PX and, and, and doing kitchen duty and whatnot, delivering the mail. Halliburton's doing that now for the army. Um, all these kinds of things. So the as as the functions that have traditionally been done by we the people by government are being replaced by corporate uh, activity, and as corporations are taking on the power through these multilateral trade agreements to tell us, for example, when we passed laws that said tuna has to be dolphin safe to be sold in the United States, and after NAFTA, a co- corporations sitting on the ti- on the Chapter 11 boards of NAFTA ruled that that was a violation of the treaty that we signed that created NAFTA. It was a violation of fair trade, of international trade, uh, free trade, rather. And that uh, because Mexico's tuna was not dolphin safe and ours was, that uh, we were blocking the, the import of the And so, therefore, a law that, that the Humane Society of the United States lobbied for 25 years to pass was passed with the majority support of Americans had to be repealed, even though we wanted it, even though we passed it, because a corporation said, you've got to repeal this law. With corporations taking this much power... How can we have any sort of 
functioning future in this world if they don't also take on some sort of social responsibility. Now, now this is not the direction that I think we should go, by the way, but, but you're arguing against them even being socially responsible. Look, we're, what we're arguing for is businesses should just do what they do best, provide goods and services, and leave the rest to uh, you know, duly elected or democratically elected governments. That's all we're saying. Um, you know, we don't see we don't see corporations taking over the role of government. Although the role of government should probably shrink, uh, we everyone needs to just stick with what they do best. Um, you know, governments in setting up the rules of the game and enforcing those rules, corporations uh, creating wealth for society, and charities, you know, taking care of the cracks in society. So, do you think, uh, for example, Social Security? You think this should be private, privately done, or this should be? No, I think government? people should people should have ownership interest in their Social Security, which they don't. In other words, it should not be a government project. This should be privatized. People should own their Social Security. The money, the money that's taken out of the check, they should own. Well, if we are all shareholders uh, in the United States of America, if we own this country, we do own our Social Security, Steve. No, you really don't, because you can't pass it down. All the money, you could die when you're, you know, age. I'm passing down a functioning society. Not, well, <laughs> that's part of the. I mean, the, it's you know, not, that's I the social what, contract. Social Security, Medicare, all these entitlements. I mean, we're getting off far afield from the topic. I mean, they're just going to eat up the federal budget. And we're not going to be able to. I mean, they're Ponzi schemes. But, but what they're if they are Ponzi schemes? But the, but this is the federal budget. Unsustainable. We have, we have we have decided that this is part of the functions of government that we want to have. We don't want corporations. Oh, I don't know. You know, I don't know. Corporations will be skimming money off the top and making making out like bandits. You know, I don't know that we've decided. We've kind of inherited this system. Uh, you know, it's it's been in. The it was decided by we the people. I mean, you know, well, you we might not like it, but no, it was, these it guys were voted into office. Franklin Roosevelt was re-elected yeah, four times. Okay, but I didn't vote for Franklin Roosevelt. What, we, what I'd like to do is have the opportunity to you know, vote on a revamping of the system. Okay. In, in, the, in the famous words of... Roosevelt is dead! His policies <laughs> may live on, but we're in the process of doing something about that as well. Uh, you, you agree with Mr. Limbaugh, I take it. Well, I think that you know we're going to have to fix Social Security and Medicare and all the entitlements because they're just going to swallow up the federal budget. They're already and, sixty percent. And and you're going to continue doing everything you can to stop any corporation from doing anything that might slow down global warming, whether or not it exists. Or well, if it doesn't exist, they don't have to do anything now, do they? <laughs> if if yeah, if you're willing to take that chance with your children's future, fine. I'm not. Well, I can look at the physics and tell you whether global warming is happening, whether anything can be done about it. Uh, you know, that's that's not a difficult exercise. Tell that to the people in Biloxi. <laughs> Steve, Steve Malloy, Competitive Enterprise Institute, CEI.org, Steve, thanks for being with us today. Good conversation. I know a lot of people who took the improv classes here in L.A. It's L.A. Like 80% of the town took improv classes, right? And so uh, obviously they're a good thing. I got to say, I feel it's a little awkward. I don't know. I, I'd be a little embarrassed. I don't know why. I mean, but it's my... supposed to get you out of that embarrassment. It's supposed to get you out of the embarrassment. Really? Yeah. Like, like, I don't know. It's uh, The whole improv feels like, okay, orange, make a joke. I'm like, no. just have you no. seen the groundlings? Have you seen just the groundlings? Bring it down with the orange, make a joke. Okay, it's supposed just to get you to think on the spot. No, improv is good. I, I did some in high school. I liked it. I I came incredibly close to taking the class because when I got out here to L.A. and I was auditioning for all those um, uh, all those nonsense game shows, I sucked in auditions at the beginning. I mean, I sucked for like the first 50 auditions I did, and I wasn't getting any better. And my agent and others thought, take the groundling class. You'll mm -hmm. do better in the audition. And then I, just, I, I don't believe it's it. It's okay. I'll give you some tips. Oh, no, ah, no, no, I can't wait. There's we'll, no question. We'll have one-on-one like, one sessions. I'll prep you before you go do auditions now. Jack, there's no way it's not true that it doesn't. Because one reason I did poorly was because I was scared. And the, yeah. uh, and the, and the, and the, the those uh, improv classes will get you over your fear of performing and being in unfamiliar territory in front of people. Sure. All right. So, Cactus, Alaska. Go. <laughs> That's not how it goes. Oh, is that how it goes? No, no. like I know one. Aloha. I know one improv game, and it's That's you make you, yeah. you do a sentence, and you have to start each next sentence with the new letter of the alphabet. Oh, uh, we're gonna do it right now. Right. This is gonna be terrible. Apples uh, are my favorite fruit because they taste really good. Cactus. 
it's funny. See? See, that was funny. Doesn't it suck if you find a worm? See, but that's my point. Like, Ew. No, but these sentences, who cares? And they're not, But you were funny. But I guess you're supposed to be funny, but the things that Jill and I said weren't funny at all. <laughs> it was wasn't just, funny. Not every sentence. It was funny. I was thinking on the spot. Don't worm and the apple is like the oldest joke in the book. What for, you, you may have actually joke. Jill may have broken the computer. The screen went dead. <laughs> um, but it's starting back up. But it's not like improv doesn't have to. Not every line, Jake, is supposed to be like. <laughs> like you build. It's a story. It's storytelling. Terrible. All right. Anyway, let's go back to the ass man. So ass man is talking about Al Gore, right? And uh, he says, the mo- new movie's coming out, the global warming movie. An Inconvenient Truth, which the president uh, asked if he would see it, said, that it. That it. That it. <laughs> so, th- all right, go ahead and put the graphic up, Pacey. Get a load of this. Is name, really? Assman? It is, yeah. How it's does it pronounce, really? Assman. Assman. David Assman, I guess? Assman? I don't know. It's like my friend whose last name is Viner. Look, he's a, con- he's a conservative hack, and his name is A-S-M-A-N. What does he expect us to call him? So, okay, look at the graphic there. This is We've put it up on the youngturks.com here. It says, <laughs> Al Gore's globally warming movie. Could it destroy our economy? <laughs> no, come on. Lisa, get away from that ass, man. Could it destroy our economy? The movie? I don't know. This combined, we got to play Jimmy Carter's ad again. This, it's been two hours. Uh, and... But this, this to give you an idea what the these guys on the right do. This is what they do. They want to censure Jimmy Carter, mm-hmm. and they think Al Gore's movie will it destroy the economy. So Assman's talking to Steve Forbes. Man, is there a bigger clown in America? Anyway, By the so, way, yeah, there are maybe a million. I know, but Steve Forbes He's is like growing in in stature and clown stature. Yeah. Uh, Assman asks Al Gore's new documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. It hits theaters this week. If people buy into his global warming hysteria. Ah! <laughs> I love it. I love yeah. it. Global warming is here. Will it put him in the White House and our economy on the skids? Steve, first off, uh, is it going to get him in the White House? Steve Forbes answers. How? First of all, who's less qualified to find out about getting to the White House than Steve, Steve Forbes? Forbes. Yeah, Steve Forbes ran for the White House as a Republican and got crushed. But only a guy. It, look, losing a race for the White House doesn't mean that you're not qualified to talk about the White House. John Edwards can talk about it. John Warner can talk about it. Steve Forbes took millions, tens of millions of dollars of his own money. Of his dad's money. Of his dad's money under the mistaken belief that he had some actual chance. And Very different than sort of fundraising and running a campaign. Steve Forbes is as clueless about American politics. Uh, he proved it with the... Uh, uh, Success of, of his uh, did he run twice or just once? Uh, I forget. It might have been twice. It might have been that he might be that foolish. Yeah. And I, since when is he an expert on finance, the economy, or money? He's not at all. His dad made all the money. How will it infa- how will it affect uh, inheritances? That's where there Steve Forbes go. is an expert. Exactly. And by the way, Steve Forbes now he's their go-to man. I've seen this now on a number of occasions. Whenever they want somebody to say something absurd, they're like, "Well, we could always get Steve Forbes to say it." I think this was the guy who said that the uh, Iran attack uh, will actually... Oh, that's right. He said about, again, quote-unquote, under economics. He said, if we attack Iran, that'll cost gas prices to go down. He ran twice, 96 and 2000. Okay, gas prices go down if we attack Iran? Nothing has been... I've never heard anything dumber in my life. I'm being serious. No economist in the world believes that. Even if you're in favor of attacking Iran, no one thinks it'll bring gas prices down. They think it'll bring gas prices way up. But Fox News is like, we need somebody to say it. Who can we get to say it? Steve Forbes. He'll say anything. Get Forbes. He's not doing anything. So, uh, Assman asked him, can this get uh, Al Gore into the White House? First, Forbes answers, no. Uh, If he believes that's going to get him in the White House, he needs to rub on something stronger than his sunscreen. And all of a sudden... Maybe Steve Forbes took those improv classes. Yeah. Very yeah. funny. Uh, and then Assman continues. All right, but if his global warming agenda somehow gets mixed up into our agenda, the national agenda, what will it do to the economy? Steve Forbes answers, it will ice the economy. And after all, some people do believe the Da Vinci Code. So some believe, uh, might believe the De Gore Code. Let me tell you something, Steve Forbes. What you don't fail to understand, Da Vinci Code is a novel. Uh, global warming is agreed upon by every scientist in the world. The 
the gore code? It is so awkward. And you know what happens, of course? All the Fox News guys think that's an actual joke. They're like, oh, the gore code, the gore code. <laughs> I, just, I took the microphone out again like a lounge singer here because I wanted to beat it against something, and then I realized that was probably a bad idea. Oh, okay. But I mean, it's just it's, it's the gore and then Steve Forbes continues. But the fact of the matter is... Just wait, real quick, just about the Gore Code. They do keep comparing this this documentary that, that Al Gore's doing to, like, uh, the what was the Passion of the Christ and the Da Vinci Code. And I'm like, what he's doing is a documentary in terms of publicity and media hype and how it's going to affect people and the propaganda behind it. I'm like, what he and Lori David did was a documentary full of facts. Well, first of all, of course, Fox News is against facts, so that's why they'd be against it in the first place. But what you don't understand, Jill, is that according to the ass men, you see it on your screen here. Uh, you know, you've seen it before. Put it we'll up, put on, it up screen, yeah. on on the youngturks.com here. Could it destroy our economy? So this this movie is not just a movie. It's not just a documentary. It might destroy our economy. Well, it might brainwash people. They'll stop driving. They won't buy cars. They won't buy gas. They'll stay in their homes. They'll try not to breathe because we breathe out carbon dioxide, which is what all the crazy global warming experts say is destroying our our, our, our ozone layer. They'll stop farting. They'll stop eating broccoli. I mean, the whole agricultural industry will go... I mean, down the tubes as well. What are we going to do? I don't know. It, it does uh, cause Steve for, uh, Forbes a lot of concern, though. He continues. But the fact of the matter is... The do you know how much methane humans put out on a daily basis? We need to stop it. It's and we unbelievable. Need to stop it right now. <laughs> it really, it's I'm going to boycott broccoli. Definitely. Uh, can I start a sentence with C now? She said sure, but that means we're, I'm going to have to start a sentence that begins with T. Okay. All right. Uh, but the fact of the matter is the policies that result from it would hurt the economy, meaning the movie. Uh, it would create unemployment. So the movie is going to create unemployment. Yeah. It's a real recipe it's for... It's a documentary. No one's going to see it. We, we're Americans. We don't go see documentaries. It's a real recipe for more socialist regulation. Mm. Yeah, Al Gore is a socialist. That's right. No, no. But this one movie... It's apparently going to be the most powerful movie in the history of mankind. It's going to create unemployment, it's going to destroy the economy, and it's going to create socialism in America, according to Fox News Channel. Man, that is... got to give it to Al Gore. I've never seen a movie that powerful in my life. Yeah. It's, uh, why does anybody watch Fox News Channel? I don't know. Why does... Uh, Comic the, relief. Um, uh, just in case we had uh, not known Steve Forbes, a uh, signatory to the uh, project, to PNAC. Project for New American Century. Of we course, did. of course. That's nice of him. Of yeah. course. That's why he wants to attack Iran so desperately and makes up all sorts of lies about it. This is Jank Uger from the Young Turks. This Best of the Left podcast is awesome. After listening to these clips, go to our website at theyoungturks.com. Since the cable networks refuse to put a liberal talk show on the air, we put one on the internet. You can watch the Young Turks live every day from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And please support the show by becoming a member or purchasing Young Turks merchandise. All at theyoungturks.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, originally, I was going to go into a little bit more detail about what I'm going to announce right now. But this is kind of a long show, so this is going to just be my bare bones explanation basically you know i've been doing the show for a few months and the response that i've gotten has been exactly what i was going for which is fantastic overwhelmingly the comment i get is thank you for the service that you're providing and i can't tell you how great that is that you know, I started this thinking, wouldn't it be great if somebody had a show with just the best of what I like to listen to? Because, you know, people don't have time to listen to all this stuff. And so that's exactly what I did. And the fact that people, you know, actually appreciate, you know, the exact thing that I was going for is just wonderful. And so basically what I'm getting at is that if you're one of those people, if you think that this is a valuable service that I'm providing, if you think that it's something that people should hear, 
then there is one thing that you can really do that would really help me out. And the point is that we all have to do it together. And so that's why I waited until today. It's the first of a new month. And I want this to be a big push at Podcast Alley. So I'll be mentioning it throughout the month. But I just want to explain it just how amazingly easy it is. You can go to Podcast Alley and search for the show. But even easier than that, go to bestoftheleftpodcast.com, scroll down just a tiny bit, and click the link that says Vote at Podcast Alley. It takes you right to the page where you vote, and all you have to do is put in your email address. And believe me, I've been voting for all of my favorite shows for over a year and I have not received a single unsolicited email from anybody because of that. You don't get put on any lists. Nothing bad comes of it. You just put in your email address. You know, you can leave a comment, which I'd love, but you absolutely don't have to. And you say vote or send or whatever. They send you an email, and then the most important thing to actually get your vote counted is you click the confirmation link in that email and that's it and you're done and you don't have to do anything until next month anyways when I ask again but it's super easy and it will really really help uh, get more people to find the show I know it's it's one of those things like it seems like well you know uh, one vote doesn't count but I'm telling you like the people at the top of that list they don't get that many votes, you know, show like huge, crazy, super successful shows like Don and Drew, where they have a half a million people listening to them. They still only get, you know, 600 votes or something like that. And it's so easy for small shows with motivated audiences like I, I well, I know, I know for a fact that I have a motivated audience because you know we're living under the the second term of George W Bush and what could be more motivation than that so i'm kind of rambling and repeating myself because that's my style but uh but it would really help the show go to the website click the link vote it's super easy i'll be reminding you through the month it's one of those things that it's easy to forget but if you just do it, it takes three seconds, and it would help me out tremendously. So that's all I'll say for now. Anyways. All right, that's it. And um, leave me comments directly. Send me emails at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com. I'll talk to you all tomorrow. Bye. He Hi, this is Nancy of Wake Up AM, Wake Up America podcast. Kathy, Meg, and I are proud to be members of the Progressive Podcast Network. Check out all of the great podcasts over at newmediarevolution.org. The Progressive Podcast Network. Stick a fork in the mainstream media because they're done. And if that leads to a fucking impeachment, then so fucking be it. Mm-hmm.